Our Old Testament reading this morning is a, a reading from the book of Numbers in the 13th chapter, beginning at verse 21 and continuing through verse 31. Uh, this is the story, or this account takes place as part of a larger story when the Israelites were um, out of Egypt. They had been on their way in the Exodus toward the promised land. Uh, they got very close and sent 12 spies to uh, reconnoiter scouts, to reconnoiter the promised land, uh, and to come back with a report, which they did in 40 days, um, to describe what they had seen there. Uh, again, I invite you to listen for a word from the Lord as it is there written. So they, the scouts, went up and explored the land from the desert of Zin as far as Rehob toward Labo Hamath. They went up through the Negev and came to Hebron, where Ahima, Sheshai, and Talmai, the descendants of Anak, lived. Hebron had been built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. When they reached the valley of Eshkel, they cut off a branch bearing a single cluster of grapes. Two of them carried it on a pole between them, along with some pomegranates and figs. That place was called the Valley of Eshkol because of the cluster of grapes the Israelites cut off there. Eshkol translates to cluster in English. At the end of 40 days, they returned from exploring the land. They came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran. There they reported to them and to the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. But the people who live there are powerful, and the cities, they are fortified and very large. We even saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites live in the Negev, the Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites live in the hill country. The Canaanites live near the sea and along the Jordan. Then Caleb, one of the twelve who was sent, silenced the people before Moses and said, We should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. But the men who had gone up with him said, We can't attack these people. They are stronger than we are. Here ends this reading from God's holy word. Our New Testament reading for this morning is a rather lengthy parable that Jesus is teaching in the gospel according to Matthew. In the 25th chapter, we'll find it beginning at verse 14 and continuing through verse 30. Again, I invite you to listen for an extended word from the Lord as it is there written. For it is if a man going on a journey summoned his slaves and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. The one who had received the five talents went off at once and traded with them and made five more talents. In the same way, the one who had the two talents made two more talents. But the one who had received one talent went off and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. After a long time, 
The master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. Then the one who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five more talents, saying, Master, you handed over to me five talents. See, I have made you five more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and trustworthy slave. You have been trustworthy in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And the one with the two talents also came forward, saying, Master, you handed over to me two talents. See, I have made two more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and trustworthy slave. You have been trustworthy in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Then the one who had received the one talent also came forward, saying, Master, I knew that you were a harsh man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you did not scatter seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master replied, You wicked and lazy slave, you knew, did you, that I reap where I do not sow and gather where I did not scatter? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. On my return, I would have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the one with the ten talents. For to all those who have, more will be given, and they will have an abundance. But from those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. As for this worthless slave, throw him into the outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Here ends this reading from God's holy word. The lectionary appointed gospel reading for this morning is one that is probably one of the more familiar from all of the gospel according to Matthew. It relates the story of three separate servants, all in service to the same master, a fellow who is at this point in the story a fixin' to go off on a journey, one that's going to take him away for, well, quite a while. And while he's away, he has jobs that he entrusts his people to look after. These three stewards are each tasked with financially related responsibilities, and that may be why this particular passage finds its way into the revised common lectionary in the midst of our traditional fall stewardship season. But I would point out it is extremely likely in this scenario that there were not only the financial matters which needed attending to in the upcoming absence of the master of the household, we're not given the details on all that other stuff, but one can imagine that there was plenty of work that had to be done on the part of the other servants who were part of the household of this master, which didn't involve money. There are a wide variety of jobs that he had to delegate to his slaves, his servants, his stewards, those who are in his service. The ones described in this text just happen all to revolve around monetary treasure, but they could just as easily 
have revolved around any number of other essential services that had to take place to keep the household running in his absence. Uh, the point is, when one thinks of the responsibility that are, has been assigned to these servants of the master, we are well aware that it is not just the gold and silver that is the concern of the head of the household as he leaves. So as each of us has been uniquely equipped and gifted by our Lord, our master, who has then called us to utilize these gifts and talents in his divine service, they don't all revolve around money. But celebrating the wide array of abilities and the realization of our potential for service in and through the body of Christ, that is what this Stewardship Sunday is all about. So let's consider these three servants who are featured in this morning's gospel text. At the start, all three have presumably been identified as having some level of mastery of things financial related. That's why they were selected for this service. It's likely that the master entrusted them with these riches according to their, his perception of their ability. Hence, one is given five, one is given two, and one is given one talent to look after on behalf of the master. But regardless of what they've been given, the master expects all of them to do the most with those talents, even when he's not going to be there to supervise them. So off goes the boss, and his people get right to work. And we don't know precisely what the first two servants did with the master's principle, whether they went to the casino or the off-track betting parlor or, or to their local bank or Morgan Stanley office. Uh, we're not told precisely what they do, but whatever the case may be, they end up making a, a pretty darn decent return on our investment. Not as good, of course, as uh, Robert Hess has made with ours here at the church, but nonetheless, it's been a respectable return on investment, about 100% each. Uh, the third servant, however, went the route of safety, stowing that money in a safe place until the master returned, and then retrieving exactly that which had been entrusted unto him. And no more, no less, but no more. And that, as we read, was not very pleasing to the master. Now, much has been made of this passage, holding up for us a, an example of what and what not to do with what we have been given, what has been entrusted to us. And that is a valid point. We should strive, after all, to put God's gifts to use in service to God's world. If we surrender at our end that which we received at our beginning, well, there's neither a, a green nor a red mark in the ledger. And I have to believe that we were made for a great deal more than just breaking even. That's why in Genesis, we, among all the creatures, were named as caretakers for God's good creation. He entrusted it all 
to us, figuring that we could be those who would bring about the most fruits from what was supplied. He could have easily, just, just as easily, have chosen any one of his creatures for this task, but he assigned us, and that's probably because he had faith in us to act as his servants. There are times when we do live into the role for which we were created, and then there are those times when we shirk our responsibilities and we take another path. Sometimes this is on account of our desire to put ourselves before that work which God has for us, and sometimes it's simply on account of our sheer laziness. But in the Gospel reading, the excuse that is given by the third servant is one of fear of the master. He claims that he knows the nature of his master and it paints an unflattering picture of the man as kind of a malevolent tyrant. He's worried that he will be harshly judged were he not able to account for every bit that was signed over to him upon the master's departure. It seems that it was this perception that the servant had of his master more than anything else that set him off when he returned to settle his accounts. You knew, the master says to him, you knew, did you, all about the kind of master I am? So how do our perceptions of our master color our responses to that he has invited us to do for him. If your view is of a rather wrathful and vengeful being who enjoys smiting his enemies and has given us a set of rules that are hard to live by, commands that trip us up at every turn and make us make our lives into a, an exercise in watching out for the landmines that litter the paths of all our comings and goings, if that then is your understanding of who God is, then you are likely to be reluctant to engage in any sort of activity which might cause offense, thus engendering an outburst from the Almighty. Now, I know there are folks who hold such an opinion of God, and I've known some of them personally, and honestly, I pity such folks, and my prayer is they will come to know that the Lord is just, yes, but the Lord also is merciful. And this is the account that we have of God throughout the scriptural account. If we read the Bible from the beginning of Genesis to the end of Revelation, we can't help but see these two natures interspersed, intertwined. This is the way our God acts in our best interest. He loves us that much. Yes, there are places, there are times when God brings chastisement upon his people for our transgressions. He knows that we need to be taught a lesson. He's not afraid to teach us a lesson. Sometimes it's a hard lesson, but one that we must learn. He is a just God, after all. 
But there is also much ink spilled in the biblical record which revealed to us the forgiving and merciful, graceful aspects of this God. And 300 times and more, we are told by and of this God, fear not. Fear not, for he is for us, not against us. And when we come to accept the truth of that, this truth, we are free from fear. We are free from trepidation and we are free for service. Free to be like those first two servants in our Mark and parable who took what they had received from the hand of their master and multiplied their gifts in return. If we are to be faithful servants who give back to our master the fruits of our labors here on earth, we then need to be dedicated wholeheartedly to that cause. Knowing who it is we are working on behalf of makes a difference in our labors. I don't care where you work or worked or what you do or did. If you care about the people you work for, even if you're self-employed and you work for yourself, you are going to be putting more effort and care into what you do if you care about your employer. It is, I would submit, just the same with God. If you do in his service things out of sheer duty, if you act begrudgingly in complying with his desires for you out of a perceived obligation, part of a covenantal employment contract, as it were, or if you do things that are based on fear, if you do things out of a out of a fear of failing, out of a fear of not pleasing God, well then, you have more in common with this third servant that we hear about in this morning's parable than you do the first two. If, however, what you do in the giving of yourself, as this is Stewardship Sunday, after all, if what you do comes from a place within you that is steeped in gratitude, it would seem that you have more in common with the first two of the servants in Jesus' parable. So I would invite you to consider your relationship with our Lord and Master in light of this Mark and parable. Who do you know our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost to be? How has this God been revealed to you? This is not only uh, an important question for Christians to consider through their journey of faith, but I think it's a particularly keen question for individuals to consider when they're discerning ways to respond to this knowledge in a season of stewardship. And I think also that it is providentially a particularly keen question for this congregation corporately to be addressing as we are in the season of prayer and discernment concerning the future reformation of the church, which this very same God may be leading us into. In this season, then, may we be 
deliberately, prayerfully considering what the Lord has done for us, forming us from the very dust of the earth, subjecting his entire good creation to our dominion, calling for himself a people to be blessed and in turn to be a blessing. How he has freed his people from their captivity, how he has brought them out of their exile, how he has made covenant to be their God and has stood by his covenant promises throughout generations. How he has sent prophets to continue his word to enlighten us on his will and to strengthen us for obedience. And finally, of course, he sent us Jesus, his beloved, his only begotten son, to save us from the wages of sin and death and promised Christ's return at the end of the age to win a final victory over the forces of darkness and to keep us safe in his presence for eternity. As you think on these things, I would invite you to consider what your response would be to a God who is and does such things as these. And for that, we may truly say thanks be to God and amen.